Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I am in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in. I have a great episode for you today, a conversation with Allegra Hyde, author of a novel called Eleutheria. It felt important to try to show a reality that was eerily familiar, also slightly, slightly off. And I think climate change is a little bit easier to look at and process if you're looking at it like a little slant ways or a little sideways. And so that also felt like a way to engage with the material, to give the book this sort of surreal edge to it. And so that's how I was thinking about time. Okay, that was Allegra Hyde, author of the novel Eleutheria, available now from Vintage. Eleutheria is the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, the TNB Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine founded in 2006, and it has its own monthly book club. For more on that, go to TheNervousBreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. Eleutheria is a novel about climate change, activism, idealism, it is a love story. It has thrillerish elements, though that might be a bit too strong. It's mysterious, gripping, utopian, dystopian. It takes place in Boston. It takes place in the Bahamas, in the backwoods of New Hampshire. And it is also a very beautifully written book. Lovely lyrical prose by Allegra Hyde. This is a thinky novel. It's got a lot on its mind. It is called Eleutheria. And my conversation with Allegra Hyde is coming up in just a bit. So it is the holiday season. It is the giving season. And I do want to suggest the possibility of supporting this program. If you are a regular listener or somebody who gets something from the show finds it valuable. You can support the Other People podcast for as little as $1 a month. And here's why I'm asking. It's because I make the show completely free. Every single episode 
more than 800 and counting at this point. All of it is, is available to listeners for free. There's no paywall. And that is intentional. I want these conversations to be available. I don't want there to be those barriers. I find them annoying as a listener and a fan of podcasts. So that's the choice that I've made. And I'm hoping that you guys out there listening will help me out a bit by supporting the show over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Again, you can support the show for as little as $1 a month. That's it. Just throw a dollar in the hat every month. I've tried to make it as easy and user-friendly as possible to support the program. I recognize that there are different income levels and situations out there. So $1 a month, $3 a month, $5, $10, $15, $20, whatever it is that you can swing, I would deeply appreciate it. And as you move up the scale, you can get merch. So check it out at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Also, if you just want merch, this is another way to support the show. You can get other people t-shirts, other people sweatshirts, other people phone cases. <laughs> just to, to do that, just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. And as you scroll down, you'll see the t-shirt. Click there and it will take you to the other people merch page. The t-shirts are great, by the way. They're soft. They fit well. There are women's cuts and sizes and colors. There's even like baby clothes. You can get everything, a hoodie. So check that out at otherppl.com if you want merch or if you want to buy somebody uh, you know, a, a t-shirt or something for the holidays. Another way to support the show, if you're feeling generous, is to rate it and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you listen at Apple Podcasts or you listen at Spotify, rate the show. Give it a rating. Uh, write a review if that's an option. That stuff really helps. It helps other listeners find the show because it improves the show's standing in the algorithm or whatever. So subscribe to the show, rate the show, review the show. All of that stuff helps. I have an email newsletter. So if you are not aware of that, I just want to give you the quick pitch. It goes out once a week. It is pretty simple. It's essentially an enumerated list. I share with you news of the latest episode of the podcast. I also share links to things that I have been reading or finding funny or interesting or amusing in some way. So again, uh, I'm, it's just once a week. I'm not trying to bury you an email or anything. I'm just reaching out sharing some interesting stuff, and that's it. So if you want to sign up for the email newsletter, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up for the newsletter at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter at either site. The Other People podcast has a YouTube channel. Not sure if you knew that. Every single episode, the entire archive of this podcast is up on YouTube at the Other People YouTube channel. So go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. And when you get there, click the subscribe button. It's free. It's easy. And there's also an interesting new twist. You can watch the Other People podcast on YouTube. I am doing video now. In the past, it was just audio. So you could listen on YouTube essentially. But now you can watch. You can watch me. You can watch my guest. You can study our facial expressions and so on and so forth. And uh, if that's, you know, if that's uh, your druthers, if that suits you, go for it over at YouTube. Likewise, the show is now on TikTok. 
So if you're a TikTok person, follow the Other People podcast on TikTok. It's at otherppl.podcast. I have been posting clips from the show on TikTok. So short outtakes, video outtakes from the conversations on TikTok. And if you would like to email me, if you have something to say, if you have feedback for me or you want to tell me a story, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Last but not least, I have a novel out. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It published earlier this year, and it is available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It makes a great Christmas gift. I'm just saying. It's an option. Again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, and you can read it if you want to. All right, so my guest, once again, is Allegra Hyde. Her new novel, Eleutheria, is available now from Vintage in a lovely trade paperback edition. It has been named a Best Book of 2022 by The New Yorker magazine. So high praise. Allegra Hyde is the author of the story collection entitled Of This New World, which won the John Simmons Short Fiction Award. And her second story collection, entitled The Last Catastrophe, is due out in March of 2023. So coming up soon, that one is also going to be available from Vintage. Allegra Hyde is the winner of three Pushcart Prizes, and her writing has been anthologized in a number of places, including Best American Travel Writing and Best Small Fictions. Her stories, essays, and humor pieces have appeared in The New Yorker, American Short Fiction, Bomb Magazine, and elsewhere. She is currently an instructor at Oberlin College, and I had a great time meeting her and talking with her about a number of things, most all of which are related to her novel, Eleutheria, which was published earlier this year, uh, back in the spring, to great acclaim. So very happy to be shining a light on this one as our December book club pick and happy to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Allegra Hyde and her novel, One More Time, is called Eleutheria. Well, I think I've always been very aware of environmental issues growing up. I grew up in New Hampshire, out in the woods. And so if there's a snowstorm and it knocks out our power for the week, I'm, I'm very aware of the, the relationship between our human civilization and just the impacts of natural forces. So I think that made a big impression on me. And going through my education, I was always drawn to practices of sustainability, spending time on organic farms, sustainable compounds in, in various places. And I really enjoyed learning about them, learning about these alternative ways of living and thinking through different kinds of systems for surviving on this planet. And so that background definitely informed the book. And then as I was as I was writing it, my reading diet was really eclectic. It's always been really eclectic. So on one hand, I'm reading nonfiction books that are predicting kind of 
what will happen 20 years from now, 50 years from now, how our seas rising are going to affect us, how agricultural will change. And I tried to absorb that information and bring it into the book in different ways. But I was also reading contemporary fiction, sociology textbooks, screenplay manuals, trying to, again, have all these disparate storytelling methodologies in play so that I could talk about the subject matter that is frankly hard to talk about, hard to look at. I mean, climate change is really depressing. And if I, I think if I was just reading kind of the, the raw facts about climate change, it would, it would be almost too demoralizing to, to address. But by combining that reading with kind of uh, all, all different things, I was able to hopefully write a book that engages with the subject, but is also enjoyable. Yeah, you know, it, that's the thing about the, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, but the, the thing about climate change that I think becomes a problem for so many people is the emotional content of climate change. Like, forget about just like the science of it. Forget about uh, the day-to-day news, you know, reports that you might get. It's like, how do you cope especially I think for younger people who are going to have to bear the brunt of this, you know, how do you cope with a future that's this uncertain and, or maybe it is certain. I never know. You know, you hear different things. Like one day somebody will be like, it's over. We're done. Just forget it. It's over. And then somebody else will be like, I'm an expert and there's still hope, you know, if we just get like the Paris climate accords to ratchet up or whatever. I'm not, I don't know if I'm versed in it well enough to have like a, def- a definitive opinion. It does seem pretty bleak though, right? Yeah, I think it's really bleak. And I think it's easy to either go to two extremes to deal with that bleakness. One extreme is to going to a place of nihilism and just basically being like, there's no hope. I might as well, you know, keep consuming plastic and just not worry about it because it's so things are so horrible and there's nothing I can do. And then the other extreme is a kind of extreme optimism and Pollyanna-ishness where you're approaching climate change from a perspective of it's going to be okay, we always solve this, and humanity will prevail no matter what. And I don't think either of those extremes are, are useful or productive. And to me, the the challenge and maybe the goal is to figure out how do you on one hand, um, bear witness to this this horrific reality and and see it for what it is, and then also pragmatically think about and take action to resolve it, knowing that bad stuff will inevitably happen. There's so much that we actually we can't change. It's already in motion at this point, but we can mitigate the worst effects. We can figure out how to maybe use the the impacts of climate change as an opportunity to maybe recalibrate our our global society and maybe create more just systems and redistribute wealth. Maybe that's actually what's possible for us. And so that's the the kind of mental place that I try to situate myself in, but it's it's not easy. No, it isn't. And in this novel, Eleutheria you have a protagonist named Willa Marks, who is from New Hampshire, as you are. Coincidentally. And who was raised, coincidentally, yes. And uh, who was raised by parents who 
are deep into like prepping. How do you how do you define her parents? Is it prepping? Is that the culture that they're in where they're, yeah. they're prepping for doomsday? Yeah, they're doomsday preppers and they are kind of coping with the reality of our world by hiding from it basically and by preparing for a catastrophe by isolating themselves and um, not participating in society. And that's the landscape that my protagonist grows up in. And the book in many ways is her reaction to that attitude or her way of finding another path. And her journey through this novel brings her into contact with many different types of people and groups who, for me as an author, were... I was trying to show different ways of coping, basically, with our reality. And Willa's parents are, are one, uh, offer one way of coping. And then later on in the book, Willa meets a group of Freegans, and they're um, kind of demonstrating a, another way of coping. She lives with her cousins, and they live in a kind of social media utopia, and they represent yet another way. And I think... Uh, all these different approaches to coping with our reality offer kind of Willa a, a different framework as she tries to figure out what makes sense for her. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So in terms of your own upbringing in New Hampshire, how much participation in society did you have as a kid? Like, did you grow up with, you didn't grow up with prepper? No, I didn't grow up with prepper parents, but I, I did grow up in a home where canning tomatoes and where raising bees and growing our own food. And so I think to some extent there, there was a layer of preparing, but not for an ultimate doomsday, but for just difficult times in some way, or just as a way, a lifestyle, essentially. And so I, I draw a little bit of inspiration from that. But I also did a, a, a deep dive on prepping videos online, which was really fascinating. If you're, if you're interested, there's, there's plenty of material out there. And I think what I found, one of the things I found most interesting watching all the prepping videos was that every kind of prepping group or prepping family had their own specific idea for what the, the end would be, what would truly end society. Some, some families were convinced that it would be 
an electromagnetic attack. Some families were convinced it would be a flood. And to feel a sense of control over that, that potential catastrophe, they prepared specifically for that, that vision of the end times. And uh, I, I thought that was, was really interesting. Yeah, you know, I had uh, David Kep on this show earlier this year, and he wrote a novel, kind of a genre thriller, about one of these electromagnetic solar situations that basically shuts down power all over the planet for like a year or something like that. And this is a real thing that can happen, which I did not know. This shows you how tuned in I am to the end times. But, he, you know, I read this book and was talking to him, and he was giving me this education about it. And he had obviously done all of this research and had been thinking about this for years and written this novel. And I got to a point in the conversation, as I remember, and I said to him, so you must be ready. Like, you must have, like, canned food in the basement and a plan and a generator. And he was like, oh, no, 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 I haven't. I can't, can't bring myself to do that. And I think this is where most people live. I think the prepper mentality and people who actually engage in that kind of behavior are the exception. And the rule are people like me who are like, yeah, I acknowledge that this could happen in my lifetime at any moment, but I'm just too lazy. And I just kind of feel like, well, if we get to that, I guess we'll just, I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I've heard that attitude a lot. Yeah, I mean, where do you fall? Where do you fall on the spectrum? I mean, I, I definitely do not look forward to the potential of living in a reality where it's like neighbor versus neighbor and we're we're fighting over a can of soup but at the same time i think i i think i do have uh some survivalist instincts and i would probably try to figure it out and i think that there's also just a big there's i also would just have the instinct to try to help out people around me. And I think that's maybe what would potentially in this hypothetical situation keep keep someone going. It's how do you prop up your community? How do you find ways to support folks who are, are, are having a, a, a hard time? I think that mutual aid is is so powerful as a, a force to, to keep going and to to persist. So that's that's what I would hope I would turn to, or that's what would that's what would motivate me, if if that happened. Yeah, you like to think that people would come together. You like I'm thinking about my neighborhood, and I'm like, yeah, I got pretty good neighbors. Like I think we would collectively like build a garden or something, and or you know what I'm saying. Like I think we would try to take care of one another. But I don't know about the people you know from outside of my neighborhood. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen in a situation like that. <laughs> it's always really inspiring to see how communities come together after natural disasters oftentimes. And uh, I was living in Houston during Hurricane Harvey for instance and just the way st- strangers will go out of their way to rescue people, to help each other in the the face of that kind of ex- extreme danger that totally flips our reality inside out is very real. And so that's something to kind of hope on in a way. I think most people in general are good. And when the shit really hits the fan like that, what are you going to do? I I mean, I I think people turning evil or dark or against one another, I think in a situation like that, most people realize they need other people. Yeah. And it's when everything's sort of going okay that people fall into this illusion that they can make it on their own or that they're self-sufficient or whatever. And so ideally people would be kind. 
I think if it really did come down to survival and like truly limited food resources or something or water, you know, there's always going to be people who try to gobble up the most, you know, then that, that could maybe be problematic and could lead to some bad behavior. But I guess there's only one way to find out, right, Allegra? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we just, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we won't. <laughs> right. So you said that you wrote this book. I was reading, I think in the acknowledgments, I wrote this book in six states and five countries. And I found myself thinking, okay, well, what was going on? You were, I mean, you were in Hurricane Harvey, so did you have to leave Houston because of it? Or what happened that had you moving around so much as you wrote this? It was very much economics of being a writer trying to find living situations where I could make enough money to buy food and, and pay rent and also have, have time. So once I graduated my MFA, I... I went to Bulgaria and did a Fulbright there, came back to the States and set up in, in Houston, did some residencies in other places. But it was always a, a challenge of trying to figure out how can I subsist in some way and, and get this book written and, uh, and, and make it work. And it was, you know, the, the moving around was was part of making that happen. And uh, it just, that's what it felt like it took. And you got to do some nice traveling in the process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the hard part about traveling is that it can be really disruptive to uh, the routine that's sometimes required to write a book and that, that steadiness that allows you to, to really focus. So I think traveling came with its costs as well. And even if I was able to set up in, in a new situation kind of over and over again, it's also really hard to drop into a place and have no social network, basically, and have to build that from scratch over and over and over again. And I, I think that made writing really, really lonely at times. And uh, I think that that's its own kind of challenge. I, I think community is, is so important for, for art making and just for being a person. No doubt, no doubt. And so six, six states and five countries, can you name them? Like what were the six states and what were the five countries? Okay, I'm gonna have to, it's gonna take me a minute to, to think about this. It's definitely, I mean, I was, I was in the Bahamas, I was in Bulgaria, I was in um, Greece, I was in, I don't know, I was in, I was in France at one point. I'm I in terms of states, New Hampshire, Arizona, Wyoming, California, Texas. I'm I'm probably missing some, but I was I was bopping around for sure. Okay, so the Bahamas figures into Eleutheria. Like a lot of the book is set there and that's where Eleutheria is. So that makes sense to me. But in terms of these other places, like how you're trying to find time and space to write. And there's just time and space in Greece somehow? Like, do you have friends there or something? Yeah. Or do you have like a, a good like rental situation? <laughs> yeah, in Greece, um, I did, I was invited to do the writing workshops in Greece, which is about a month long program on Thassos, the island of Thassos. And I did that twice and I was able to get funding and that made it kind of financially 
possible and it it was a a chunk of time and the chance to think about to think more about what it meant to live on on an island because that's such a powerful geographic experience and I've I've always been really fascinated by islands and drawn to islands and the way that they shape ecology and culture in these uh, in in really intensive ways. Well, and I also think that from the perspective of climate change, it's got to be one of the most dramatic landscapes to find yourself in, you know, where you've, you're surrounded by water on all sides and depending on how low-lying the island is. I mean, there are entire island, not, I don't know about countries, like the Maldives I've heard, aren't they going to go away in climate change? I mean, there are a lot of island nations or island communities that are in serious peril. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really unfair because these island nations are not the countries that are creating the climate change. They're barely contributing to the our kind of global CO2 impact. It's it's largely the US and and China that are having the greatest impact. So it's it's really unfair and if if they're is any global justice these countries that are causing climate change primarily should be doing everything that they can to help these island nations like the Maldives like the Bahamas and I I just think that that is a a, a moral imperative so speaking of like moral imperatives because I think this is a question that comes to mind for me often when I think about this stuff and probably comes to mind to a lot of people. It's like, well, what to do? You feel sort of silly recycling. I mean, not that recycling is bad, but it feels like that's all most of us do. It's like we just wheel the blue bin out to the curb and you know, <laughs> hope that we're doing our part, you know? But uh, I think that the actual changes that we would have to undertake individually and collectively and politically are far more extreme, might be the word, far more serious, far more... Like the magnitude is greater, uh, you know, than I think most of us are willing to accept. And I want to have you read from a section of the book. It's towards the end. But it's this great passage of directives, essentially, uh, of like how to behave, the kinds of things we need to do to mitigate against the worst consequences of climate change and to sort of limit the disaster. So... If I could just have you read that section, I believe it starts on 291 and goes to the top of 293. Yeah, sure. Turn off your lights. Turn off your computers, your printers, your phones, your security systems, your air conditioning, your robot vacuums, your entertainment consoles, your microwaves, your heat sensing pillows, your electric toothbrushes. Pull all other plugs. Drive less, bike more. Find alternatives to flying. Plant trees, plant native trees, plant flowers and vegetables, and then eat the vegetables and some of the flowers. Clean your plate, compost scraps, divert gray water for irrigation, take shorter showers, use biodegradable soap and make your own cleaning products. Air dry laundry, repair the clothes you have, repair the shoes you have, repair furniture, repair houses, repair friendships, and have your friends over for dinner Speak to strangers, skill share, ride share, babysit, house sit, house share, reuse, reduce, work less, buy nothing, no straws, pick up litter, keep bees. 
create bike lanes and pedestrian walkways, limit tailpipe emissions and institute congestion pricing, enforce energy efficient building codes, promote zero carbon construction, generate electricity from renewable sources, consider co-generation carbon capture, citizen owned utilities, promote public transport, better public transport and make it free to all. Create community gardens, stormwater gardens, wastewater gardens. Create community forests and fields and rivers and lakes and marshlands and mountains and subtropical shrub steppes. Fund environmental education. Make nature easy to love. Add green roofs, green walls, green sidewalks. Make spaces multifunctional. Give artists license to add beauty. Set up free eco-libraries, seed banks, time banks donation centers, volunteer networks, make quality healthcare available to all, make fresh produce available to all, make sustainability synonymous with equality, set binding international climate treaties, set ambitious targets, the ones required to avert climate catastrophe and do what it takes to meet those goals, tax toxins or better yet ban them, prosecute offenders for crimes against the earth, Decouple money from regulation, decouple money from governance, close loopholes, close drill sites and fracking operations in ruinous mines. Decentralize the internet and energy systems and power structures in every sense of the world. End wars, end the cult of GDP, measure well-being instead. Invest in research that helps everyone. Listen to scientists, listen to teachers, listen to poets, listen to indigenous voices along with those of others silenced over the centuries. Pay reparations, then pay more. Pursue carbon equality, restore ecosystems, prioritize biodiversity, remove international borders that prevent wildlife from roaming, that keep people from roaming, offer global natural disaster support, relocation support, immigration support, Decolonize countries and economies and thought patterns. Tell the truth. Represent the people. Take responsibility for the past and for the future. Try. Okay. So before I get too far, I just want to ask quickly because I'm confused on one thing. What's a time bank? I think it's a, a volunteer structure where you're offering, offering time, volunteer time, basically, for, for various needs. Or it could be oh, okay. a, a sci-fi creation nice. as well, I think. <laughs> okay. Okay. I was like, I've never seen a time bank. I, where is a time bank? But, you know, this is a radical vision that you are laying down. And yet I find myself nodding at all of it or most all of it. And thinking about the way the world is now, how unsustainable it is, how unhappy most people are, <laughs> how stressed out, uh, you know, I, it just can't help but feel like the idealist in me can't help but feel like, wow, we can do a lot better than what we're doing. This can't be the this can't be it, right? This can't be the the peak uh, of like human behavior and organization. And yet, how how to get there? I, I feel like the the vision that you're you're painting here is kind of communitarian. Is that a way of putting it? Yeah. Like I'm trying to sort of like suss out what a a, a human future would look like. And like what the politics of that human future would have to be. It certainly doesn't seem like corporate capitalism as the prevailing model or the cult of the GDP, as you put it, is a sustainable model. And yet 
people are so indoctrinated with it, especially in the United States, that to even present an alternative is to evoke like an extreme negative reaction. And I think too, especially in the United States, but also in other places, you know, communism has not worked out well. Like a communitarian government system has centralized power in ways that I think are at odds with what you're, you know, you're uh, presenting as a possibility or as an alternative. And so I guess a question for me as I think about all this is like, how do you bridge the divide between democracy and a communitarian future and decentralized power? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. how do all these things coexist in a way that would be functional and good for people and would not lead to abuse of power, you know, and and the kind of like darknesses, the human darknesses that can tend to exist in those situations? Well, I, I feel like I should definitely say that I I do not have all the answers and I cannot uh, purport to, (laughs) you know, (laughs) lay down a perfect vision for what to do. I do think that the first, maybe the first step for moving forward is to, to believe that uh, an alternative is possible at all. And in some ways that seems really simple and kind of like nothing in a way, but to believe that there are alternative political structures and and social structures out there that could be better is is radical in and of itself in my opinion i also think that really paying attention as an individual to what you what you value it can be radical and deciding for yourself that you value well-being over i don't know a particular type of financial status or something is radical and important as well. And it doesn't mean, I think, can have intangible impacts, even if you're not, you know, chaining yourself to trees, etc., in order to move forward a particular political agenda. I think knowing what's important to you and being open to alternative systems can can permeate outward and can have uh, is kind of the the first step to actually making making those changes happen on a bigger scale on a, a structural scale i think regulation is key to a sustainable future so that means putting real measures in place so that corporations aren't destroying everything and wielding kind of absurd amounts of power and that uh, putting regulations around our political systems so that there's not so much dark money, et cetera, influencing politics and um, politicians actually represent um, the people that they're supposed to be representing. I think that that would make a an enormous difference and help us move towards that that better world. I, I wrote this kind of sequence of steps moving from kind of individual steps to community steps to governmental kind of national and international steps because I wanted to, on one hand, make good on the utopian promise of my novel, but also because I wanted to show that we, we do 
know what we need to do in order to solve climate change. We do know what what needs to happen. It's not necessarily a, a mystery. And I think really seeing those steps laid out from an individual to a governmental level is as useful. And it goes back to maybe my motivation for writing this book as well, because when I started working on it, I felt like a lot of the quote unquote climate fiction that was out there was very apocalyptic. And that was, it was really focused on just showing how bad things could be and kind of influencing the conversation and by showing a worst case scenario to kind of scare people into taking action. And that that is useful and to some extent, but I, I felt like climate fiction or climate engaged books needed to go further or think about it differently. And so I, I tried to use my novel as a space where I showed people actively addressing climate change or trying to address climate change, maybe failing, maybe not doing it the right way, but at least trying. And then by the end of the book, also offering as an author, essentially, another potential map that is that is clear and that is thorough to some extent. Okay. So just to kind of give listeners an overview of what is happening or some of the things that are happening in this novel, you have Willa Marks, who is your heroine, your protagonist, who was raised by doomsday preppers in the wilderness of New Hampshire. And her parents uh, die and she ends up kind of on her own living with, well, not on her own entirely. She's living with some cousins in Boston and she winds up down in the Bahamas on this Island called uh, Eleutheria. And she's part of this, um, what do you call them? It's like echo activists who have set up this thing called camp hope. Can you give listeners just a kind of broad strokes overview of what Camp Hope is? Sure. So yeah, Willa ends up going to Camp Hope because she wants to make a tangible impact on climate change and to truly be a an activist and a, 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 a an effective player in the fight against climate change. And she finds this text called Living the Solution that basically outlines an activist plan for finally um, addressing climate change effectively. And the plan involves this compound called Camp Hope. And the idea is that by showing a version of sustainable living that is so kind of beautiful and even fun and picturesque, that it will help put forward a a vision of an eco-society that will become ultimately popularized in mass media and the and Camp Hope has has been kept secret but the the goal is that this sort of perfect eco utopia will be launched in the the public eye and will spearhead a, a a global cultural transformation and the people there have all been specially selected for their various scientific skill sets, but also just for their their physical appearance as as part of a kind of eco marketing campaign. And so Willa wants to wants to be part of this group, part of what she believes will be a, 
uh, a revolutionary turning point in the fight against climate change. Is there any corollary in the real world for this? I, I found myself curious. Like, <laughs> did you, in your research, or did you stumble into something that inspired you? Because uh, it seems plausible enough, you know, some version of this could exist at some point. Camp Hope is a product of, a, I think, a lot of places and ideas. I've always been really fascinated by utopian communities ever since I first heard about the American utopian movement that has kind of run through the history of the country. And I've spent a lot of time on hippie communes, and I did spend time at a, a kind of eco-compound in the Bahamas that is not Camp Hope, but did lend some inspiration. And I think in many ways, Camp Hope in my book is a it's the, it's the product of a thought experiment for an, another approach to activism. And uh, it's not necessarily what I personally think is the, the, the way to go, but it is a way that um, could be tried. And that's where, where it came from. And Camp Hope is led by this charismatic uh, ex-military guy named, is it Roy Adams? Am I remembering this? Yeah, Roy Adams. Okay. And I just, I thought that was an interesting choice and a nice extension of what I understand to be one of maybe the best leverage points for significant climate action at a political level is the fact that it is a national security issue. It's not just an economic one or an environmental one or, you know, something that might concern hippies, (laughs) you know, among other people, but it's also like got real consequences in terms of the security of nations. And so, I don't know, there was a nice logic, I think, to the idea that this this camp, if it were to be effective and alluring, would maybe have some military dude involved. Definitely. And I think right now, climate change is still so politicized that it is re- just reject the idea of sustainability is rejected by large groups of people. And so, like you said, the logic of the premise of Camp Hope was that it kind of grafted sustainable ideals onto patriotic rhetoric and that having a military leader would be a part of weaving kind of eco-culture into the fabric of American life by like I said, grafting it onto a kind of existing framework and value system. And in some of the the sort of text that is supposedly taken from Living the Solution, there's kind of comparisons between fighting climate change and fighting a, a war. And the idea being that just as Americans are often ready to jump into battle, so they might be ready to jump into a climate battle if they saw that as part of a a kind of patriotic maneuver. And that's not, I don't think that that is so far from possibility if you think about the way that historically people kept, say, victory gardens as a kind of patriotic gesture and as a way to contribute to a, a war effort in the past. And so that's the that's the logic behind this eco compound. However, as the the book ultimately shows by riding this this military machinery, the compound is 
attaching itself to a legacy of colonial colonialism and oppression that is has problematic and that will ultimately mean that the the end result of the the kind of eco vision that this compound is moving towards will will not be one in which a more just and equitable society is realized. It's interesting to think about the ways in which these kinds of intentional communities might form as prototypes for the future. Like there's a there's a logic there that I can follow. I could see it happening. And it makes me think also of the ways in which the United States military often is at the forefront of innovation, like really consequential innovation. I'm thinking of the creation of the internet, you know, mm-hmm. the way the internet kind of originated, I believe, is a military project. And email was a military communication tool before it kind of went mainstream. And so I could see how some subset of the United States military as an exercise, as it tries to sort of beat back the worst effects of climate change and protect the country or whatever, might invest money in creating an intentional community as an exercise to see how it would function. I can also see, and maybe you've thought about this, how a really rich, eccentric, like tech billionaire type dude or a dudette could potentially uh, like buy a chunk of land. I think this st- sort of stuff is already happening. I want to say I've read about this where, you know, some guy is going to buy a chunk of land in Nevada or some state where there's lots of land and try to create his own, u- you know, echo utopia. And that maybe it could become a prototype for the rest of us. I think the challenge is like convincing everybody to start like repairing their own shoes and to leave behind like amazon.com and you know all of these modern conveniences because it would be a pretty radical shift that people would have to undertake and i think the big challenge when it comes to climate change is convincing people that this is both necessary and also that it might be better <laughs> like i think you know maybe people would be happier if they weren't constantly consuming compulsively you know yeah i i think that a sustainable lifestyle in many ways could be better. It could mean three-day work weeks and just de-escalating our economy in, in a way that just gives us all a lot more free time to, to hang out. It could mean spending you know more time in small small gardens and that seems that seems great to me and just having more green space that seems great to me. I think that it's also important to remember that so much of kind of the worst effects of climate change are they're not created by someone buying three pairs of shoes instead of just using one. It, they're created by huge corporations that are kind of unregulated and that are mining in unsustainable ways, that are polluting in unsustainable ways. And I think, you know, we're all on one hand responsible, but also I think there's, we've kind of been fed this rhetoric that like, if you know, it's our fault that climate change has happened because we forgot to like recycle a a water bottle. But in fact, it's it's actually much more the fault of the water bottling companies that are packaging their products this way, that are privatizing a a resource like water to begin with. And I think it's it's their fault much more than it is the the person who didn't recycle that water bottle because they were thirsty or busy or in some way oppressed. And I think stepping back and seeing those 
larger systems that are at play and demanding something different is important. I think, yeah, this is the, where the conversation tends to go with me whenever I'm talking to somebody about this who knows about it, is that you can make all the individual changes you want. You can live as radical of a life as you want, but in the absence of major political change and, le- you know, like action, collective action at the level of politics. So what we should make, maybe the best use of our time is to be advocating for the political solutions that we need, you know, at the federal level and I guess at the local level, but especially at the federal level, correct? I think so. And I think knowing what our priorities are and knowing what our ultimate values are, are that's part of that political change that is necessary. So are there any politicians that you like on this topic? Like, are there politicians you think who get it, who would be worth like following and listening to? Or is, it, is there anybody out there who's really got a handle on this? I mean, I, I'm a AOC fan for sure. And I, you know, appreciate the fact that she has actively amplified youth climate groups that are working really hard to, to push forward a, an agenda that is, you know, asserting measures for sustainability in our, in our country. And so I, I, I really appreciate her. But I think there's not that many uh, mainstream politicians out there that are really committing to the the change that needs to happen. So I want to ask you about another storyline in this novel, which is the Sylvia Gill storyline, the relationship between Willa and Sylvia. They are romantically involved, but also like intellectually involved. And Sylvia Gill is a sociology professor at Harvard. And so The question that I have, I guess, is in the invention of this Sylvia character, like she's performing a function in the sort of uh, ecosystem of your novel. You have Willa, who's kind of the, you know, the vessel through which you're trying to kind of take action. She's like the surrogate for the reader, like the person who is going out and trying to walk the walk and be a part of the solution. And then you have kind of these Freegan characters uh, you know, these freaking groups in Boston who are, you know, walking the walk in their way. You have Sylvia Gill, who's teaching sociology and kind of has like a big picture mind and understanding of how human systems work. You have the Roy Adams character and the Camp Hope kids who are, you know, sort of the hippie commune kids. Like they're the, they're the ones who are trying to walk the walk together and build this thing collectively as a model. And, and then I guess you have Willis' parents <laughs> Mm-hmm. who are the, you know, I don't know if nihilist is the right word, but just kind of the, the doomers who are just ultimately overwhelmed mm-hmm. by the negative, which I think can happen. But, you know, in particular, can you just talk about the creation of the Sylvia character and the function that she performs within the narrative? Sure. I think one of the reasons why Sylvia exists is because I wanted to talk about Harvard actually. And Harvard felt like it needed to show up in my book, because in many ways, it's actually the origin of of the university is actually at the, the heart of this novel. Because when I was first learning about the real island of Eleuthera in the Bahamas, and learning about these Puritan settlers who had 
gone to um, the island of Eleuthera with utopian, proto-democratic aims and then ultimately um, totally fell apart and became a a really um, oppressive society in their own way, um, violent in many ways. (laughs) I was interested in the fact that at one point, this Puritan group got aid from colonists in Boston. And in return, these Puritans in Bahamas sent a load of brazzaletto wood to back to Boston. And that wood ended up being kind of this key original endowment for the university. And I was just so fascinated and struck by the relationship between the Bahamas and this incredibly powerful American institution that has produced so many leaders and movers and shakers over the years in our country and the the way that we are also connected across time and place in that way. And so I, I wanted to have Harvard on the page and be present as the book goes back and forth between Willa's life in New Hampshire and in Boston and her experience at Camp Hope in the Bahamas. And then uh, Sylvia as a character, as a, a sociology professor at um, Harvard, allows her to represent another way of coping with our, our, our reality. She is someone who talks a lot about systemic change and about social movements, but she does so within the safety of an institution and without ever really shaking anything up or, or changing anything. And it felt important to kind of show that mode of existing in our present times as another another mode that Willa engages with as she tries to figure out how to how to be in a world that is full of disaster. And Willa's kind of relationship with Sylvia over the, the course of the novel is what ultimately spurs her to go to Camp Hope because she wants to prove to Sylvia that she is serious. She is someone who walks the walk, and that's kind of the catalyst for, for what comes. Um, there's also more about Sylvia that um, I feel like I can't say without spoiling the book, but her kind of connection to... Camp Hope is she's she's more present than we know in many ways. It's all, I mean there's also like a nice love story happening here. I mean this is that this book is a love story in a way, and I found that part of it to be unexpected and compelling and interesting at the level. I mean I think at the level of Willa's character in particular, you know she's such a lost person, like she's an orphan basically, kind of floating through the world and ends up having this really intense relationship with Sylvia. And all of it, I mean, not just the love story, but the, you know, the happenings in the novel, broadly speaking, are set against a political backdrop that is interesting to me at the level of creation because it's both like hauntingly recognizable (laughs) in an immediate sense, but also feels like the future. And I, I'm interested to hear you talk about that particular choice because it feels like something you did consciously as a writer. You know, I don't want, I want to say there's not specific mention of politicians or even time. 
like a year, unless I'm misremembering, which is always possible. But I think I, I think it felt like a, a story that could take place like yesterday or today or even, you know, a few years, several years into the future, right? It's kind of a, a, a story for a variety of times. Yeah, I set out to write it in the near future. And in some ways that that future caught up to me as it over the five years I was writing this book. <laughs> so <laughs> that was uh, that was part of it. But it it felt really important to set this book in the the near future or or close a kind of close reality, because if the book was set too far in the future, if it was set in 2050, say, then I think that the political, ecological reality doesn't mean as much to us as a reader. It's kind of just becomes a, an actually an escapist dystopia, basically. And it felt important to try to show a reality that was eerily familiar, but also slightly, slightly off. And I think climate change is a little bit easier to look at and process if you're looking at it like a little slantways or a little sideways. And so that also felt like a way to engage with the material, to give the book this sort of kind of surreal edge to it. And so that's how I was thinking about time. So what about these hippie communities that you've spent time in? Are you talking like rainbow gatherings? Like what is it that you were experiencing or studying to get your yourself ready to write Camp Hope? I think that there is something funny about hippie communes, intentional communities that is, to be perfectly honest, one of the reasons why I'm drawn to them. When I first heard about Fruitlands, which was a, a 19th century compound where they, they didn't want to use any animal products. And so, and they only wanted to eat what kind of what they could gather off the land. So they were a kind of proto-vegan community. This was Bronson Alcott, Louisa May Alcott's father, who was spearheading it. And it's it's really, in some ways, it's, it's kind of funny that they thought that that would work. They were in Massachusetts, and how did they expect to survive the winter? But at the same time, I, I really admired the the courage to try to step away from mainstream society and to do something different and to take a radical chance. And that is really uh, appealing to me. And in terms of communities that I've personally experienced, I, I went around New Zealand for a while. Um, and New Zealand has more hippie communes, intentional communities per capita than any other country. There's something about it that just kind of foments these communities. So I would, I would show up and participate in the, the daily chores and and farm work of of these different groups and learn about their different systems for kind of living together making decisions making money and it was it was really interesting to see how how these different groups problem solved and how they how they succeeded and then also how they failed because so often they do fail they don't last very long and I was interested in the types of people who are drawn to to step away from mainstream society to, to try something different, and and that had a big a big impact on me. And then I think other places that I spent time include uh, on an island called Star Island off the coast of New Hampshire, where I worked in a kind of semi-intentional community of workers who ran a hotel that had a very kind of alternative lifestyle vibe to it and and that was really influential 
when I lived in the Bahamas and was spending time at a, a kind of eco compound there, I think again, it was interesting to see how the group created its own its own value system, its own way of relating to the land, its own set of what was important, what wasn't important, how their idea how they came up against their own ideals. There was a legend at this the the place in the Bahamas that they decided they really wanted to not create any trash because there was no they wanted to be sustainable and if they're if if someone did eat a a candy bar or something and they had um uh, a, a candy wrapper that couldn't be recycled in some way or or you know woven into a mat or something that it had to go into a trash pile that would be um, visible to everybody in the community so they would see visually how much trash they created and over time like it's it's hard not to use anything at all and so this huge trash pile just mounted in the community that they all had to look at and eventually they just had to throw it away because it was just (laughs) horrible to look at and it was like I think that that's really funny and I think it's also um, just an example of people really trying to live by a certain set of ideals and then coming up against their uh, kind of practical limitations and um, that's something that has happened over and over and over again throughout the history of the Americas and the kind of various utopian communities that have existed through time, including those Puritans that I I mentioned earlier. And that just endlessly fascinates me. Yeah, it's like you talk about these intentional communities of whatever form, and it's like, which ones are successful? You know, I think about this a lot. It's like, I feel like people who make that radical choice to live outside of the mainstream man, is there something alluring about that to me? I think like there's some instinct or intuition in me that's like, yes, whatever's happening in a mainstream sense, mainstream cultural values are not for me. I want to resist them instinctively. But to actually do it and to actually walk that walk in a serious way is not something that I've been able to do. Like disentangling myself in the ways that I might dream of hasn't fully happened yet. And then I think about like hippie communes or intentional communities or the Puritans in the Bahamas on this island with all of these grand intentions. And then it's like, oh, and then it turned into the Lord of the Flies or whatever, you know, like it always kind of goes sideways and, you know, human bad behavior tends to intrude. On a parallel note, I am like so fascinated with monastic culture because I feel like maybe if there's a spiritual component or framework that's guiding that that is sane and or you know mostly sane and guiding the people who are in that community that it might have the best chance for success and I also like just the just the the extreme austerity of it by conventional American standards you know, to just have a couple sets of robes and some sandals and like a bowl <laughs> and to live in a group setting and to have like a bed and like just to not have stuff, you know, but to also have this like practice, like it seems to make sense to me. And I think like there's a part of me that can't help but believe like, oh, wow, this is maybe how to do it. But convincing the, the majority of people to live like this. And, and this isn't to say that you have to be you know, chaste or to like become a monastic necessarily. 
Like you could do this in the context of like having a relationship and a family, but to maybe set up intentional communities that sort of function like this feels like the, maybe the direction we need to go, but it feels like such a long way to travel for most of us. Pe most people would like roll their eyes and be like, whatever, it sounds like hell. <laughs> yeah, I think eco, eco austerity is a tough sell. I think in some ways, if you, yeah. if there's a way to talk about a kind of abundance, an abundance of, of produce and time and any number of things, that, that's a lot more appealing. But as you were talking, I was, <laughs> I was thinking about uh, the Shakers, who in many ways were one of the kind of really the more successful utopian endeavors, and they lived very monastically, and they also had a a spirituality that was kind of a governing principle. And they, um, at their peak, had thousands of members, were really financially sustainable. They were always inventing things like the table saw they invented. I think they invented the clothespin. And that was all really effective. However, because celibacy was key to their sort of way of thinking, they weren't kind of reproducing and replacing themselves. And for a while, they relied on orphans coming in and living with them. But when their orphan supply was was cut off, they they kind of died out for that and other reasons. So I don't know. Yeah, that that is a side note. Well, maybe it's just uh, yeah. I was gonna say just just you got to take out the celibacy, get rid of celibacy, and you've got a sustainable model. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it's like, it's like, it's just interesting to like, think about it in, in practice. Like how does a, how does a better way of doing things in a collective sense happen and what does it look like? And it's never going to be perfect. Like I, I think about some of these monastic communities I'm interested in and like, you'll read up on them and you'll be like, oh yeah. And then one of the people there committed suicide. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, well, you know, like how could, but that kind of stuff, it's going to intrude in any human group. There's always going to be problem like human problems and human suffering and people who don't make it and then you know trying to think of other examples of uh groups that might function well it's really hard to think of them you know it just seems like human human beings just might not be wired for this do you ever have that thought i guess that's more of a nihilistic thought i don't want to get too dark but sometimes i can find myself just being like Maybe we just maybe we just don't have it, you know. We don't have the stuff. Yeah, I definitely go there sometimes. I wonder if we're too smart for our own good at times, and we're so good at kind of problem solving and controlling our environment that we uh, we kind of get past the mechanisms that might have kept our our. Um, our population in check or made us not, you know, drive so many species to extinction. And it, it almost seems like human beings intelligences could be what will ultimately be our, our downfall in some ways. TBD, I guess. Right? We'll <laughs> see. Or maybe we won't see, but event eventually someone will see. Did you go to Harvard? Did you go to Harvard? No. Is that part of your fascination with it? Or is it more of like an outside looking in thing? It's, it's definitely outside looking in. But I, I'm from New England, and I think Boston was always the, the kind of big city to me growing up. So I, I feel like I have a, a relationship with the place that way. What about the transcendentalists? Well, I mean, I think they're part of my interest in just American utopianism in many ways. And 
and that that's something that I've, I read a lot about and that kind of informed my interest in wanting to explore real present-day intentional communities and maybe neo-transcendental endeavors. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm such a fan of uh, Emerson and Thoreau and that whole set. And like, I feel like it ages well. You know, I feel like a lot of what they were writing about, like, first of all, it's very easy for me to idealize, idealize this stuff because they were so learned. Like, like Ralph Waldo Emerson, like those essays, the amount of reading and deep thought built into those I don't know. It's pretty impressive. It feels like almost like airtight, like he covered it all. You know, there's that sense. And I think that's why maybe it endures. And then I think Thoreau as like a prototype for an echo activist and an ecological thinker and somebody who understood systems and human relationship to the environment, like way ahead of his time. And especially like impressive to think of how much he accomplished on the page for a guy who died in his 40s. I mean, he was young when he died. I mean, I guess a lot of people were young when they died back then. But I don't know. Like when I was in, I I haven't spent that much time in New England, but I was in New Hampshire, but I flew into Boston. It was on a work thing uh, a few years ago, and I had some downtime. I can't remember if it was on the way out. when, Like when I got there, I, I left the airport, or when I was coming back. Either way. I went to Concord. I was so excited. I was geeking out like so hard. I went to like uh, I went to like the Thoreau cabin model that they have at uh, what's it called? What's the lake? Um, Walden Pond. Walden Pond. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, but no, I went there and I like walked around those woods. I walked around the pond and you know that was and I went to Thoreau or Emerson's house and I was so excited to see it and uh, I don't know. I feel like. I feel like those guys are worth studying maybe in a modern ecological context. Like they're there as a kind of foundation. Definitely. I I think what's also worth noting is that Thoreau's utopian cabin on, on Walden Pond is also another kind of classic example of an effort to live by a certain set of principles that was only doable with certain cheat codes, uh, whether it's, you know, his mom doing his laundry or, you know, having other people <laughs> bail him out of jail or any number of, of things. And I think Ralph Waldo Emerson was was funding all kinds of enterprises during that time that made these utopian experiments semi-possible. And it, I think it, I think in that way, it, it represents how i don't know per, like perfection these the perfection of achieving these ideals is as as really has has always been pretty impossible but it doesn't mean we we can't learn from them and can't admire the the effort or like something to strive towards yeah. you know it's good to have ideals i think i i'm a defender of idealists and idealism uh, like otherwise how do we make progress like that's a necessary function in the human evolutionary system right we've got to have people who dream and so maybe this is your calling you can be part of the like new transcendentalist there's going to be some literary movement or collective of like echo writers or something maybe that'll happen 
I feel like we don't have teams the way that we have in literary in our literary past. Like, where, this doesn't happen anymore. There's like the beat generation and the transcendentalists, and what else, what else? There hasn't been anything in the contemporary age that I can think of. Maybe the Brad Pack, like the Brad Easton yeah. Ellis and <laughs> Jay McInerney, like the Lower Manhattan like cocaine group or whatever. Like, but the I feel like we need something uh, new uh, along these totally. lines. Like maybe there could be some sort of collective literary subset that could have an impact uh so let's manifest that yeah. uh, like as a note to close on like somehow if you're out there listening <laughs> get in touch with allegra and uh or get in touch with me and we'll try to put something together <laughs> and especially if you're super loaded and you want to be the benefactor of all <laughs> this maybe we could create an intentional literary community i would yeah <laughs> would like to have t-shirts right we could have a well, we could have uniforms even i mean who knows how it would uh how it would look but i could see you know, maybe we all wear the same color or, uh, you know, we have the same hat or something. But I enjoyed the book and I liked what it made me think about. And I like as a, like an imaginary exercise, like it's a useful way in to the subject matter is what it made me realize, you know, is to tell stories about this in a fictional vein and to make them entertaining and romantic and all the things of kind of like great stories is, it's just a nice way in rather than maybe the straight academic or like the nonfiction terror <laughs> that we get, you know, oftentimes when it comes to this stuff. So kudos to you for putting it together. And I always ask my guests, like, are you working on anything else? And is there anything new in the pipeline? And it's fine if there's not, but I'm, you know, I'm just always curious. Yeah, I've got an, uh, a book of stories coming out in March called The Last Catastrophe. And it's in some ways continuing what I was doing in this novel by exploring different ways of, of thinking about climate change, engaging with climate change, and more specifically, maybe engaging with this idea of global weirding, which is another way of thinking about global war warming, where it's not just about higher temperatures, it's about everything we know about our, our weather, our social systems is just kind of going off the rails a little bit and or a lot and so the stories explore that in in various ways sometimes absurd ways there's there's vegan zombies girl grows a, a unicorn horn there's a finishing school in space so it's it's a little zany but i'm excited to share it is global weirding a thing is that like a real term it is and i'm i'm gonna try to popularize it more because I think it's less politicized and it, I think it makes more sense. I think, I mean, as soon as you said it, I was like, yes. <laughs> like, I feel like people, people can recognize global weirding. They can recognize global warming too, but I feel like weirding is definitely something that's happened, you know, happening right now that we all have kind of a sense of. And I'm glad that you're thinking about this stuff and writing about this stuff and trying to make sense of it for the rest of us. So kudos to you and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. All right, everybody, there we have it. That was my conversation with Allegra Hyde. Her new novel, Eleutheria, is out there now from Vintage. You can find Allegra Hyde on the internet at AllegraHyde.com. Follow her on Twitter. Her handle there is at Allegra underscore Hyde. She is also on Instagram. Once again, the book is called Eleutheria. It's available in trade paperback from Vintage right now. Go get your copy. It is the official December 
pick of the TMB book club. It's a good one. Eleutheria, go get it. And be on the lookout as well for Allegra Hyde's new story collection called The Last Catastrophe, due out from Vintage next year in March of 2023. The Other People podcast is offered freely, so if you're out there, if you're feeling in the holiday spirit and you want to support this podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you listen. It helps. And if you want to sign up for my email newsletter, just go to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in either place. Sign up. It's free. The Other People Show is on YouTube in video. You can watch it. Go subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. Or if you just want to watch the highlights, if that's the kind of person you are, you just want like the Cliff Notes, Cliff's Notes, you know what I mean. You can go to TikTok. The handle for the show on TikTok is at otherppl.podcast. The Other People podcast has its own official app. Did you know that? Oh my God. It's got an app. It's a good app. It's free. It's a great way to listen. If you want to get the Other People with Brad Listy app, just search for it by name, Other PPL, wherever you get your apps. The Other People podcast has an official website, otherppl.com. You can also follow it on Twitter, at Other PPL. You can follow it on Instagram. I believe the handle on Instagram is at otherppl.podcast. If you would like to write to me, if you have thoughts, if you have feelings, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Next week on the program, I believe my guest will be Sam Lipsight making a triumphant return. The great Sam Lipsight. He's got a new novel out called No One Left to Come Looking for You. It's getting all sorts of buzz. And I love talking with Sam. So stay tuned for that one. Happy holidays. Stay sane if you can. Don't buy too much shit. You know what I mean. Don't freak out going to be over soon. <laughs> or maybe you'll be sad when it's over. You know, there's a wide range of options in terms of your attitude. I'm trying to stay open this year to the goodness of the holidays. I'm trying to be receptive. I'm trying to put out good vibes. All right. I will talk to you soon. 